Welcome to the Learner-Centered Spaces podcast, where we empower and inspire ownership of learning. Sponsored by Mastery Portfolio. Hosted by Star Saxstein and Crystal Frommer. In each episode, we will bring you engaging conversations with a wide variety of educators, both in and out of the classroom. This podcast is created for educators who want to learn more about how to make the shift toward learner-centered spaces for their students, schools, and districts, or education at large. The Learner-Centered Spaces podcast is now a member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. We are so excited to have Jennifer Gonzalez, the Editor-in-Chief of Cult of Pedagogy. She was a middle school teacher for seven and a half years and then taught pre-service teachers at the college level for more than four years. In 2013, she started Cult of Pedagogy, a website for teachers where she interviews classroom teachers and educational experts to explore best practices, classroom management strategies, social justice resources, and insights on how to use technology thoughtfully. And we are so excited to have you on today, Jen. I know that um, Cult of Pedagogy is definitely a space where I send a lot of the teacher teams that I work with um, because you have such amazing resources for folks, not only with your podcast, but what you've done with the website in terms of just getting amazing resources. Um, and, Thank you know, you. of course, <laughs> us will be talking today about your, your ed, your year in review on ed tech. So can you tell us a little bit about what started you on your current journey? Sure. First of all, thank you for all of those kind words. That's really, really sweet of you. Um, so I was a middle school language arts teacher, like you were saying, and um, I uh, stopped teaching for a while to uh, stay home and raise my kids. During that time, I worked part-time at a university to teach pre-service teachers, and I really loved it. And I thought, this is what I think I want to do. Um, but I needed to get like a PhD or something in order to really do that for real at it, at the university level. So basically my kids were little and I thought, I don't know that I have the time to go through a full PhD program, but I had to take a couple classes just to keep my um, certification active. And so I took a couple of ed tech classes. One of those had us submitting all of our work through a, a blog, like a WordPress blog. And I was so extra in that class. I just, um, I did everything way, way, way more than any of my other classmates did. I always made sure I had a nice image and I, you know, and I thought, you know, I think I really like this. Um, and then I had to learn how to make screencast videos because we, they had us cut way, way back on the amount of time that we could spend with student teachers. So I started turning a lot of the lectures that I had into videos that I submitted. And so all of a sudden, I just realized I could be doing this, what I'm doing with these, you know, 30 to 40 students every semester on a larger scale. So I started Cult of Pedagogy in 2013. And I just decided instead of going the PhD route, I'm going to see if I can reach people through the internet and teach teachers that way. And it just, after that, I learned how to make a podcast, and then I just kept going, and I never went back to the classroom after that. And I've, you know, it's been it's been proposed to me a number of times, you know, that uh, that what I share, uh, well, I shouldn't say this. It's been mentioned a few times by some internet trolls that because I'm not in the classroom, I have no business doing this. And 
my answer to that is if I were to go back to the classroom, I couldn't do this because I have learned so much more about teaching since I left the classroom because I've had the time to research things, to learn about what's going on in other classrooms. And that's the catch-22 of teaching full-time is that you don't actually have a lot of time to perfect your practice. So I feel like I am doing a service for teachers by doing that legwork to help teachers do their work better. And I think you do. I mean, I don't, it makes me a little sad to hear that you get trolled about not being in the classroom anymore. And I know that that's always sort of been a concern of mine too, the further Mm. I get from it. Um, But I think that you touch the lives of teachers in so many different ways with the materials you share that you don't necessarily have to be in the classroom to understand what teachers need, especially because you spend so much time talking to teachers still. That's well, and that is really, first of all, thank you. And it's actually not as often, it's not that often, but when it comes up, it still kind of irritates me. And so that really has been the approach that I've taken is to just keep featuring teachers on my site who are actively in their classrooms and they're sharing their best practices. And so, um, you know, as long as I feel like what I'm doing now is sort of pointing a spotlight on classrooms where things are working and try to share that with other teachers. Yeah, I love that. Um, so to that end, can you tell us what a learner-centered space looks like, feels like, sounds like to you, and what tech best supports it? Yes. So I think just at at a base level, there needs to be a foundation of psychological and academic safety. And what I mean by that is that I think people know the term psychological safety, but I feel like academic safety is really important too, in that kids feel comfortable enough to take risks, to ask questions, to say, I don't know how to do this. I don't understand this. And I think that's a barrier that is that holds up a lot of classrooms where that, and the teachers may not even know it's happening. And so I think there's a lot of things that we can do um, to, and I wrote an article about it years and years ago, to open up more academic safety for our students so that they can uh, advocate for themselves and, uh, you know, take more charge of their learning. Um, I think a classroom that celebrates everyone's individual identity is important. Goldie Muhammad has done a lot of work in her um, you know, her field in terms of doing that, you know, working on that. Um, it's important for students, obviously, to have autonomy and choice, uh, that the space is designed for movement and flexibility so that they can do that. Um, and then in terms of the tech that can support that, I think there's so many different ways that it can. Um, obviously, digital portfolios where students can showcase their own work. There's a lot of platforms that do that. Uh, feedback tools that the teachers can use with students, but also that students can use with each other. I think um, Moat has been an interesting one lately that allows us to give audio feedback on things like Google Docs. Um, And with all of these things, I think it's nice for teachers to be able to use these, but also um, that we show the students how to use these things with each other, because that is really the most learner-centered thing we can do is put the tools in their hands and have them use them with each other. Um, then there are, there's a whole suite of, of collaboration tools out there. Uh, Kanbanchi is one, I think that's built into Google Classroom that uses the, the Kanban method of sort of like, it's like Trello with all the different um, columns for organizing like a project that you're working on. And so 
if your classroom has a lot of project-based learning, which I think is very learner-centered, giving kids some tech that they can use to manage all of that um, can be really incredible. Because I also think that out there in the business world and in the career world, the startup world, those kinds of tools get used a lot when teams are working together on projects. So if we can show our students how to use those kinds of tools as kids, then they can take that out into the work world. And then there's discussion tools. There's Kialo and Parlay that um, just kind of put some structure into classroom discussions and online discussions um, and can really enhance them. And any time we get our kids talking to each other, I think that's also a very learner-centered practice. So that's just a little, that's actually a very long answer to uh, all the different ways that we can uh, make our spaces learner-centered. So Jen, you just mentioned a whole bunch of different tools that I've never even heard of. And I don't know if it's indicative of the fact that I haven't been in the classroom for a while. How do you find these tools when you're making your tech study, your tech review for the year? Um, so yeah, so the teacher's guide to tech is this PDF that we put out every January and it is an encyclopedia of tech tools. Uh, teachers have come to me for years saying that they're just overwhelmed with all the choices and kind of what you're saying. It's like, there's, there's a lot I've never heard of. I feel like I should be. And so again, not enough time. So I actually have a team of four women who are all tech specialists in their own schools and they, I used to do this by myself and I got help a couple of years ago because I couldn't handle it all. Um, and we basically just over the course of a year, as we hear about new stuff, we we actually have a document that we call the dump and we just p- put links in there. And then at, at the end of the year, we start looking into everything and deciding this is something that a lot of teachers are saying they're using. Here's something that's new. And um, we separate everything into 50 categories and show you how everything works. And so it's meant to help teachers just find what they need really quickly and also learn about some some really cool new tools. So I am now right now coming off of what is generally a two-month cycle of updating the guide every year. And it's and it's horrible. And I'm so glad it's over. But it's a beautiful, beautiful guide that we just put out. Um, last week. And it's just it's just called the Teacher's Guide to Tech. And that, that's the idea. It's to help people like you learn about what's out there. Well, we will put a link to that in the show notes as well, and as well as uh, all the tools that you mentioned. And I don't know if you know this, um, Star might know this, but I learned about Star through your podcast. Mm-hmm. And I am a math teacher. I'm not a language arts teacher, but I was listening to Star's episode on how she is ungrading and she was teaching journalism and language arts at the time. And I was just inspired. I was like, I have to, I have to know these women. I have to know more about this. I have to. (laughs) And I think that was part of my beginning of my journey towards looking towards learner centered spaces, um, going towards ungrading. So thank you to both of you. (laughs) Thank you to both of you for um, helping me to um, see the light, if if that's not too dramatic, but I feel like it's about right. I think that star, I don't know if that was 2014 or 15. It was a really long time ago now that she came on for the first time. I think you've been on twice now, actually. Yep. Yeah. the co-construction of success criteria was the last one. Yes, yes. And so those were pretty far apart. But yeah, I love hearing those stories when somebody talks about hearing somebody for the first time on my podcast and it sent them on a whole 
long, uh, long journey. Crystal, did you hear the P- the Peter Lilliedal interview too? The yes, okay, because yes. that one I think is also just a huge one for math teachers. That was fantastic. And anytime Peter Lilliedal is on a podcast, I'm going to listen to it. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, he he's a brilliant, brilliant human. It's not just math teachers, though. I mean, I read his math book and was blown away by like how easy some of the moves were and how his research had supported that. And when I work with math teachers now, I always reference his work because I Mm. feel like they judge me when they find out that I'm a humanities person. (laughs) What am I doing, you know, helping them? Yeah. (laughs) But what I love about both of your work, uh, Jen and Star, is that it is accessible to the sciences and to the math teachers out there listening. And I think that you you both do a great job of of helping us see how what you're doing in humanities does translate. And that leads to my next question, Jen, for you is about assessment. So what ideas do you have about assessment in a learner-centered space? This is a, this is a tricky question. I, I think that the more we can do performance-based stuff, I think sometimes teachers think that they have to create assessments that are quick and easy to grade and are standardized across the board so that everyone's taking the same thing. And I really hope that that there's been enough conversation now in the education world that has kind of proven out that these tests that we think, like everyone thinks, oh, a multiple choice test is so nice and simple and clean and has one right answer. And there's been so many people that have broken down how that's just not really the case. Um, depending on how the question's written and how you interpret it and what the student's background is and all of that stuff. So I think when we can lean more toward performance-based assessments, project-based learning, where the students are sort of making something with their learning, or they're, they're, there's a sort of original end product of some sort where we can really see the application as opposed to the student just kind of repeating an algorithm for us or something like that. Um, that's where we really see um, whether the learning is sticking and is transferring to some kind of a new situation. Um, you know, the fact that we have Star in this conversation, I can still remember her periscopes years ago when she would sit in her car and talk about her conferences with students that she was having. And it was such a good example of how assessment doesn't even have to be this super complicated thing. It can be sitting and talking with students, figuring out what they know, what they're needing to know more about, and uh, you know where they'd like to, to go moving forward. And you know, ideally, that's really all we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out what do you know, what have you learned, and you know, what needs to happen next. And so that can happen in, in a real variety of ways. Um, so I don't I don't know that I have a real clear answer to that. I think a lot of it can come from looking at what other people are doing, getting to know our students. Um, you know, there's a <clears throat> there's a strategy called it's 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 had a couple of different names, but where you've got like a back and forth like a dialogue journal with a student. And this is something that we do in um, writing classes very easily, but I always felt like as an English teacher, I knew my students so much better because they would just keep journals in class and I would read them. And so I had ideas of what they were, you know, what was going on in their lives and in their heads and so on. And so dialectical journal, I'm I'm looking in the comments just now. Yeah. So 
this kind of knowing your students is such an important first step just for all different kinds of assessment. Thanks for that, Jen. I'm like, I was giggling while you were talking because when I think about those morning periscopes, like (laughs) sitting on the curb because I literally wasn't allowed in my building yet. Like I would go to get like a good spot in Queens where you just really can't park because my school didn't have a parking lot. (laughs) And like, that's really how that, all that live streaming happened. And the crazy thing was, was like, Six months after I started doing it, everyone started videoing themselves in their cars. I was like, <laughs> right? Isn't that like crazy? starting some weird trends here where people are talking in their cars at uh-huh. people on their and phones. And the content was fantastic, though. It was so reflective and it was such a good model for how you could, in a very simple way, you know, assess with your students and, and help them to decide what they needed to do next. And it, it just showed that it did not have to be anything complicated. I love that. And I have a next question for you, which I think is a, a pretty uh, good one for our listeners who might be new to this. And if they're new to learn centered space, maybe they work in a school that's traditional or they really don't have a lot of freedom with how they're grading or how they're assessing. What advice do you give a teacher who's in a situation like that, who just wants to get started? So for me, one of the best things I think any teacher can do to learn how they want to become as a teacher is to just go into other people's classrooms. You'll see stuff that you don't want to do, and you'll see stuff that you never thought of. That's that's such a great idea, you know, especially in, well, not especially, this is also students that you teach, if you can see them in other classroom environments and how other teachers have structured things, it will give you ideas. And so- I would I would start by, you know, maybe asking around who who has a really learner-centered space or you can almost tell by talking to the teacher sometimes how enthusiastic they are about their students or whatever and go in and and see what other teachers are doing and that will sort of organically help you to sort of lift ideas that you want to take into your own classroom. Um and I would also ask students um the I did a series of videos and podcasts and everything with um, Jamila Dugan and Shane Safir, who are the authors of a book called Street Data. And their whole approach to school transformation is interviewing students, particularly seeking students who are at the margins, students who typically get ignored and neglected by the system, to find out from them, how is school working for you? What's not working? What would you like to see that could be different? And it's meant to be a completely open-ended question. And from those interviews, they call them empathy interviews, they learn so much about things that they never would have even thought of. Or, you know, sometimes teachers and schools spend so much money and energy changing things around, thinking it's going to make things better. And they never ask the students. (laughs) And the students are sitting there like, we could have told you it really, we didn't need that. We just needed like better access to water. If you could have gotten a water cooler in the back of the room, that would have made all the difference. It can be something much more simple than we're trying, but if we never ask them, then we'll never know. What you said just now about listening for teachers and how enthusiastic they talk about their students. I've never really thought of it that way, but you're right. That's a, that's a great way to, for lack of a better word, to sniff out others who are like you. Yeah. And Um, I'm an administrator and a teacher, and I often hear a lot of complaints and negative comments and, 
you know, uh, oh, this student is this and this student does this and I can never get him or her to do this. But I need to be perking my ears up more to listen to the teachers who are enthusiastic and have built relationships with the kids and know it's not going to be perfect, but at least there's this optimism and this hope that they have for their kids. And that's really, that's, those are the teachers that we need to be following. Those are the teachers we need to be going into their classrooms and watching what they're doing. So thank you for putting that in such concise language and and helping me and our listeners to, to look for that and to know who to follow. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So Jen, you, you already gave some good shout outs, but are there, are there any other people or um, platforms that you want to shout out to help our listeners build a learner-centered space for themselves? Uh, yes. So we mentioned P- Peter Lilliadal, who I think stands very, very high at the top of that pyramid. Um, and then the, the street data, Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan, if we just Google the term street data, a lot of stuff will come up on that. Um, I think Catlin Tucker has done some really great work with blended learning in terms of putting the work into the classroom and having the most learning happen in the room. And so that you can use tech to sort of support that and duplicate yourself as a teacher. So students can be independent, you know, as they're going along with their own learning. Um, Then in terms of just design, I think Bob Dylan and Rebecca Hare have done some really great work. I did an interview with them just when they talked about how you actually set up the classroom and, and make it visually a place where students can learn. Um, and then I also have, I did a series years ago called Classroom Eye Candy, where teachers just submitted photos of their classrooms that just were great places for students to be in. All of them had elements of student-centeredness um, in that. So that's just, those are all just individual uh, teachers who have done some really great work in their own classrooms. And where can our listeners find you online? If they go to cultofpedagogy.com, that is the hub. There are links to all of my socials there. There's links to the YouTube channel. You can get to my podcast from there. That would be the place to go. Well, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for learning with us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. If you'd like any additional information from the show, check out the show notes. Learn more about Mastery Portfolio and how we support schools at masteryportfolio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Mastery for All and on LinkedIn on the Mastery Portfolio page. And we'd love your feedback. Please write a review on your favorite podcasting app.